I must say, I, I think the last 10 years of my 45 in the public service, um, what I saw happening inside the Canadian forces um, and then to the country in general really disappointed me. It disappointed me and it made me angry, frankly. It, it, made, me, uh, it made me realize that, that some of the things that were going on uh, I did not agree with and I was just very disappointed in, in where our country was headed. Welcome back to the Northern Sentinels podcast. On this episode, I sit down with Michelle Maisonneuve, a retired Canadian three-star general and public servant who worked for 45 years in service to the country. Michelle was born in Montreal and spent the first part of his youth north of the city. As a result of his father's profession, the family moved out west where he began grade nine in Saskatchewan as a unilingual francophone. After graduating high school in Thunder Bay, he spent 35 years in the army, rising to the rank of lieutenant general. He made the choice to continue to serve in helping reopen Collège Militaire Royal in Saint-Jean-Québec as the academic director. After a decade in that position, he decided to retire to the peace and quiet of the Niagara region of Ontario. However, most Canadians might be familiar with the general from his acceptance speech at the Vimy Gala in November 2022, where his remarks drew a significant amount of criticism. Why, after 45 years of service to the nation, would someone step into the spotlight during their retirement? We discuss this and much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michelle Misenuve. Michelle, thank you so much for uh, for being on the podcast and for inviting me to your home. What a what a great part of uh, of Ontario and down here in Niagara. It's awesome. Yeah, we love it. It's a great place to retire and uh, you know close to everything. So and the wine is not bad. That's that's never a bad thing. <laughs> One of the things when uh, when we were chatting previously that I thought was just really cool is in terms of your family history that you're that you're eleventh generation Canadian, if I have that right. And mm-hmm. Like how how has that informed your thinking, or how has that focused you on what you, you're going to do with your life, um, having that sort of lineage in the country? Well, um, first of all, thank you for uh, inviting me to uh, to do a podcast, and congratulations on this initiative. I think it's a it's a great idea, and uh, and I'll be listening to all of them uh, for sure. Yeah, eleventh generation. I'll tell you the, the the thing I guess that it jumps out at me is how how blessed I am. Uh, how lucky I am to have uh, to have grown up in this country, and that's the first thing. The second thing is how um, important to have our all the the different immigrants that come to our country now, and how they've helped build the country. And I I, I don't say that you know without you know I, it's not just a I'm not just saying that. I think I have lots of friends who are you know from different ethnic backgrounds. Barbara, my wife, is a first generation Canadian. Her parents came here. Uh, her dad came to work on the railroad or the uh, or, or in the bush. He's Ukrainian. Uh, her mom came uh, post-war from post-war Germany, uh, and both of them had jobs. Both of them helped build the country, you know, help our economy and everything. And and so, and my parents, uh, you know, my parents both on my mother's side and my father's side, uh, you know, worked hard all their life and everything. So. When you look at my lineage compared to that of my my wife and a lot of my friends, it's uh, the comparison is you know you work hard, uh, you can achieve something, you can help your country, you can move forward. And I uh, 
you know, it's, uh, and sometimes I find that we, the Canadians who have been here for a long time, don't realize how lucky we are to be in this country. You kind of take it for granted. Whereas when my in-laws came here, they said, we are the luckiest people in the world to have arrived in Canada and to, you know, to come here from our countries, which had been, uh, you know, had been pretty well destroyed in the Second World War, you know. So uh, very fortunate and uh, and really appreciate our immigrants and, uh, and especially, uh, you know, those that come here and have a desire to build our country. Where did your family originate? Um, although 11th generation, obviously you'll have a different bunch of different branches. So yeah. where, where are the, what's the background of your family history? Then? Interesting. My father is a Franco-Ontarian. He was born in Rockland, Ontario, so near near yeah. Ottawa. I think yeah. you know the place. Most people do in, in, who live in Ottawa. And, uh, and uh, eventually his parents made their way to, uh, to Montreal. And, uh, so the Montreal suburbs, my, uh, my mother was born in, uh, in, uh, south of Montreal, or, or sorry, north of Montreal in St. Therese. And so, uh, and they met, uh, they met at a community, uh, event or whatever there. And, uh, my mother was the oldest of 12 kids, oldest girl of 12, uh, 12 children. And, uh, and so uh, and my dad was a machinist first and then eventually became a bricklayer. My uh, my mother was always a stay-at-home mother. And in fact, uh, when I guess she was in grade five, her mom said, okay, that's enough schooling for you. You're not going to stay home and help me with the other, you know, 11 children. <laughs> so so uh, like, for example, between my mother and the youngest brother, there's almost 20 years uh, you know, different. So, uh, so, you know, she was already an adult looking after the, you know, when the kid was born, she was already 15, 16 kind of thing. And, you know, so, um, so that's kind of, uh, where they came from. And, uh, I was born in St. Jerome, so north of, uh, north of Montreal and, uh, lived there until I was 14. You were there till you were 14. What was life like in, in Montreal as a, as a kid at that point? Well, it was, uh, it was kind of, okay, so uh, this is 1967, I was 14 years old, and, and the reason why I remember that is because, of course, you know, the, the Beatles were out, the uh, the Rolling Stones were out. I remember going to the bus station in Saint-Jérôme as a kid and uh, and putting money in, the, they had a jukebox there, and I put money in the jukebox to listen to I Can't Get No Satisfaction. But <laughs> this is a true story. So here's a Frank, French kid, you know, francophone, yeah. didn't speak English. Um, and, uh, so I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to the bus station to listen to satisfaction. Uh, you know, I, I just thought about this now. It's, it's neat how your memories are tied to, to things like that. Things like music and, yeah. uh, and smells and, and, uh, food. I hated lobster. My parents had lobster. I guess lobster must've been, cause my parents were not very rich, but lobster must've been pretty cheap in those days. And salmon, they, they love to eat salmon. Um, my mom was a great, uh, you know, stay-at-home mom. Of course, there were six kids in the family, so, um, and my dad was a, uh, so I said he was a machinist first and then became a, uh, a bricklayer, and then he was a contractor, and, and in those days, there was no question of, you know, br- bricklaying in the middle of the winter. I mean, and the winters, of course, in north of Montreal were just horrible. Mm. So there were many times when he was not working as a bricklayer, so then he worked in the, he was a maitre d' and he was a bartender, and uh, you know, so worked in the in the hotel industry, and uh, it was a uh, pretty cool. Uh, to, but he never was never out of work, and worked his butt off. And uh, I think one of the things he, uh, I think he passed on to all of us was to to work hard. And uh, 
So it was very interesting too. So you said you were in Montreal until you were you were fourteen. So what happened at, at fourteen? Yeah. So my dad then, uh, because of this, you know, kind of uh, inability to 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 keep working as a as a, uh, a construction worker all year round, got himself a job. Got a job. Applied and got a job uh, with a, uh, a company that builds pulp mills. And uh, I guess in some of the big pulp tanks they need to line the inside of the tanks with these special bricks that that are chemical uh, chemical resistant and so he he was doing that and he so then he began traveling and he's this is before 1967 he's all over canada and uh and then eventually a company said you know we're going to build a pulp mill in prince albert saskatchewan and we'd like you to move there and kind of be the foreman for this uh for this this new build and uh so this is during Expo 67. So I had a chance to yeah, okay. go to Expo 67 yeah. a couple of times. Man, man, man in his world in those days, it was called Expo 67. It was pretty cool. Um, and uh, But the whole family picked up. We, uh, we were renting a house. And so uh, my mother bought these great big trunks, you know, the blue trunks, the blue uh, aluminum trunks that, uh, you know, and she packed, I think, 10 or 15 of them. And, and we jumped on the train. The company moved us to Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and we rented a house there. And so I finished grade eight uh, in French and uh, got to Saskatchewan uh, a month before school started in the middle of the summer and uh, and started grade nine in English. And uh, so that was a uh, that was a a pretty uh, intense moment. I mean, uh, in fact, I I, uh, I was a pretty good student in in Quebec, but I uh, my marks went way down, of course, and. Uh, especially those where I had to speak because of course I had this heavy accent and kids made fun of me. And, uh, in fact, I remember had, having to, uh, you know, I was so, uh, nervous and everything that, you know, they, they brought a doctor you know, to see me and said, okay, you know, and so they gave me pills. I was taking <laughs> Valium or something, you know, to, to relax me. But after, uh, after a few months, everything, uh, kind of improved. And I think after a year, I, I lost a lot of my accent and was very lucky because I was in the middle of the, you know, the kids who were older than me, my older siblings kept their French accent and my younger siblings kind of lost their French. So I was very, very lucky at 14. It was a perfect time for me to learn, uh, learn English. And, uh, it obviously served me well all the rest of my life and my career in the military. Is there any any sort of pushback from the from the uh, your siblings about about going? Because that's it's got to be a, a massive culture shock going from a, a, being a francophone family in in Montreal to being in Saskatchewan. You know what? It was instead of pushback, it was excitement. It was unbelievable excitement, and and uh, you know, again, when you think of culturally what was happening, and you know, and this was the you know the the days of the. Uh, you know, make love, not war, and uh, and the and the uh, the you know the uh, uh, you know the the love movement in uh, uh, San Francisco, and uh, and the, again the Beatles and the Stones and everything. And uh, so my brother Claude, believe it or not, my brother Claude, the oldest in the family, he's now eighty-one. He used to call me Mike, even when I was living in Quebec. You know, because it was cool. Okay. So, you know, so, yeah. uh, so uh, isn't that interesting? Yeah. 
So we get to we get to Saskatchewan, and of course, people are calling me Mike there because you know Michelle. Oh my God, you know that's that's a girl's name, and uh, and you know there's, I would say that the cultures were not as integrated as they are today. You know, and you have to think this is before Trudeau came to power, before he you know uh, the, the official languages act and all that stuff. So, so we moved to Saskatchewan. And believe it or not, there's a few communities, uh, francophone communities in Saskatchewan. In fact, Gravelberg is uh, apparently, uh, and I've never been there, but it's a, you know it's a town that's kind of like Welland here in Ontario, which is uh, like half francophone, and uh, so uh, so it was very exciting. Um, and uh, and so the so we moved there with my the, my two younger the two siblings younger than I am. Uh, than I was, and uh, and one of my uh, older, uh, so four of us plus my mom, and the the five of us uh, on the train for three days going across Canada in these uh, these roomettes, and they had two chairs during the day, and then they would bring down two beds on each side, and you know for at night, and uh, uh, you know it was a pretty classy way to to go across Canada. And uh, we got to Saskatoon, and, uh, and then took the the high speed train to well, the high speed train in those days, the train to yeah, yeah you know what I mean, yeah. to uh, to Prince Albert. Uh, it was a very uh, a very uh, interesting trip. So, other than the um, learning English and a bit of that that shock of uh, having to rapidly learn a new language, um, what were your your memories of you know time in Saskatchewan? Um, it was very relaxed compared to what I was used to in Quebec. Quebec, of course, uh, in grade eight, we were, I was in a Catholic school. Of course, all schools in Quebec are Catholic. Separate schools are, are Protestant or, or, you know, so it's the inver- the reverse from uh, Ontario. So, so I was all used to wearing. Uh, you had I, I had wore a sport jacket to school at grade eight, you know, and you had to be dressed nicely, and uh, you, you know, no jeans allowed, and and uh, so I get the. I get to Saskatchewan and, you know, kids are all wearing jeans and, you know, uh, runners and, and everything. So I'm, for the entire grade nine, though, I still wore my sport jacket. Okay. <laughs> I was kind of the nerd, you know. And I was and I uh, I was wearing glasses, you know, so I had the big horn rims and, you know, I was truly a, a 100% nerd. But the other thing is I, I really found the people open and very generous and very nice. I mean, I had made friends very quickly in the, in the summer. And, uh, in fact, I made a girlfriend at 14 years old. I remember her name, Cindy Tarasiak, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, Ukrainian girl, is, you know, neighbor and all that. But it was, uh, it was great. And uh, I took the school bus to go to school. So, uh, and I went to St. Mary's uh, High School. It was a Catholic, uh, Catholic school. And made some friends at the, some one of which I'm still in contact with a guy called Manny McLaughlin. You know, a good guy. So once I got over the you know the the real difficult parts of the learning the language and going to school, it was it was it was great. And my parents, my dad, you know, worked very hard. And I understand now the pulp mill is closed. So you know, time okay. time goes uh, rolls on. And uh, but he was very successful. He loved what he was doing. Eventually. Uh, I think both of my brothers, at least one of them, came and worked with him, and uh, my sister worked with him there too. So, so you know, the whole family was, uh, and they made good friends that they stayed in contact with after that. And uh, but after a year, uh, the company said, "Okay, that was great. Uh, you know, the, the thing is well on its way. Now we'd like you to go to move to Thunder Bay." And so I ended up doing my last four years of high school in Thunder Bay, grade ten to grade thirteen. Uh, it had grade thirteen in those days, and. Uh, so another move, and uh, and but again, my parents were uh, 
I mean, they were nomads. I mean, just there was no problem picking up and just going, you know. And of course, I I loved it because uh, you know got to see different parts of the country. Do you start to get instilled with a bit of a sense of adventure? Because uh, clearly, um, when you said that the family nobody railed against going to Saskatchewan, actually it was you know viewed quite positively. I mean, do you get a sense that that was one of the reasons why you were drawn to something like the army? Could be. Uh, I've never thought about it. They looked at this as, I think it was one of those things where my dad always said, if you want to work, you can work. You can find work. You just need to go where the work is. And so he never had a problem with uh, with heading out there. And, and I guess that was, that positive uh, approach was uh, was passed on to us. As far as joining the military, that had really never... Although I must say that when I was, uh, before I left uh, Quebec, I was in a Quebec Air Cadet Corps for a few months, just a few months. Um, and I kind of liked it. My brother, the oldest brother that I was talking about, Claude there, uh, had had uh, spent uh, three years uh, in the Van Dues. And, and so uh, he'd done an initial engagement and... Uh, and he, he, you know, loved the uniform and everything. And uh, and I loved to see him come home, you know, dressed in uniform and watching him put on his, his putties in those days. And, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. it was, uh, you know, it was really, uh, really cool. So, so even though I say I never really thought of joining the military, um, uh, you know, so there were some of those anecdotes or whatever, like probably in the back of my mind. But in terms of being mobile, uh, going where the work is, uh, that's something that was passed on very early on. You know, Was there any, I mean, so Claude was in the in the Van Dues. Was there any other family member who had spent time in, in service? No. I had an uncle who was a, uh, a, a Quebec policeman, but, but no, otherwise, no. Nobody, uh, maybe a cousin. But nobody that I really got to know or anything, or nobody was a role model for me, certainly, before I joined. So as far as me joining, it was more of a, an issue of going to university. I always thought I'd, I'd like to go to university. My parents were not uh, well-to-do, and I was always worried about whether they could pay for it or not. And in my high school, there happened to be a, a, a guidance counselor who, uh, who had gone to RMC and failed, actually. Dr. Callahan, not doctor, but Mr. Callahan, and uh, uh, really nice guy, but he said, hey, well, you know, why don't you think of, of RMC? And I thought, what, you know, what is RMC? And then he tried to explain it to me and all that stuff, and eventually I thought that was a great idea, so I, I applied, you know. It's, yours is not the first story where it's been a uh, an individual who's raised military college as an option, or back before the internet, I mean, there was a far more prolific, like, recruiting effort where recruiters would be out in, in schools uh, all over the place. Did you ever ever think of, if you didn't have the opportunity to go to military college during the military, where you think you would, professions you would have pursued? Yeah, I, I loved drawing, and so I thought, and my dad was taking a drafting course and, and by correspondence, and I used to take his, I used to take his lessons and actually do them, and uh, and I loved it, and I was pretty good with a with a pen to to draw, and and uh, so I thought I, I'd like to be an architect, and uh, and in fact, so in those days in high school, you uh, when you were in grade thirteen, you would fill out in the beginning of grade thirteen, so even after in the fall of the, your last year, you would fill out an application given by the government of Ontario. And it was, uh, you put your top three choices that you'd like to, to apply. And I think I applied at Waterloo, Toronto, 
uh, NRMC. And lo and behold, I think even, I think it's it's either in December or January, um, RMC sent uh, two people to come and talk to me. So they sent the head of the electrical engineering department okay. and a major. So a guy in uniform and a, and a civilian. And they come to the school and, you know, my uh, my teacher, I think, or even might, might have been Mr. Callahan said, you've got two people here who'd like to talk to you about, about RMC. It happened to be the day that we were doing greaser day at school, so I'm I'm all greased up. I've got my hair, and I had long hair, so I it all slicked back, and I'm wearing a, a t-shirt with no sleeves, and you know, <laughs> playing the part of the greaser. And, uh, and these guys come and talk to me, so I don't know what kind of a you know uh, of, a, of an impression I made, but obviously uh, I, I received an a, a, you know a, a an offer very soon after that. And but I thought. You know, I hope they're coming to see other people because it must be obviously very expensive to do that. But that's interesting what you say and how they, uh, you know, this was pre-internet. It was pre uh, a lot of things. And so, you know, everything was done by mail. In fact, I remember getting my invitation and a letter in the mail and uh, responding, uh, telephoning or whatever. And I had to go to Winnipeg to the recruiting center to, to be uh, to be processed. So you, you hadn't gone to a recruiting center. So you just applied to military college through the normal university yep. application process. Oh, yep. isn't that interesting? Okay. Yeah. And then the recruiting center in in uh, in Winnipeg are the ones that were writing me saying, you know, okay, well, here's your offer. And if you agree, well, then, you know, here's when you would arrive here. And then it was very well organized because RMC then sent me a letter. The guy who just passed away, the guy who passed away a couple of years ago now, a, a captain, I stayed in contact with him for a long time, uh, even when I went to RMC and then after that uh, through my career. But he was a great guy. But he wrote, said, you know, you're going to be part of the class of 76, you know, the centennial of the college. And uh, oh, yeah. you guys yeah. are pretty, uh, you guys right. are going to be pretty, you know, it was a form letter, but it was hmm. still a letter to, and I was very impressed. And so, uh, so the day that, uh, that I was supposed to be enrolled, you know, to get the swearing in and all that, I, you know, we had to, we had to go to, uh, to Winnipeg, my parents came with me on the train, you know, and uh, they so, were at the swearing in with this brigadier general, whose name I forget now. But what did your parents think about the idea? Because I mean, you don't have a history of no. of military service. They were super proud. They were so proud. I mean, I, it was never, uh, you know, why are you doing this or whatever. They they were really proud. I was very lucky to go in the path that I did, and uh, my parents were always very supportive. It was great, you know. When you reflect back on those four years at uh, at RMC, I mean, what stands out for you the most of that experience, and and how, you know, how it informed the rest of your career? Yeah, I think I think uh, first of all the friends I made. I think it was uh, it was uh, just an incredible uh, moment. I, I made so many, uh, you know, all my buds that I you know that I've stayed in contact with, and there's never there's no one in there I think that I can say that I didn't appreciate or or like second thing would be the mentors that I, you know, it started there. It started at, at RMC where the mentors, uh, you know, made a difference for me. And, you know, my, my, my recruit flight, uh, you know, uh, CFL was fantastic. My, my, uh, the first, uh, cadet squadron leader was a guy called Bill Sutherland who eventually joined the PPCLI and, uh, he was a guy I idolized, you know. I mean, the guy, you know, scared the crap out of me, but I loved him. He he looked like a he was a model, you know, and so he was my first mentor. And then I went to, to uh, my basic training in, after my first year at RMC and uh, in '73. And uh, Sergeant Cy Clayton uh, was my uh, my instructor. 
I have contact with him to this day. He's now 82 years old. Fantastic really? guy. He was one of the very few black people in the in the military. A black sergeant who served with the um, with the guards, uh, the Black Watch, and uh, eventually became an RCR. Of course, when uh, those right. those regiments were disbanded, but he. Uh, he was a guy I emulated, and I, uh, I to this day he's he's just one of my heroes, you know. And uh, I used to, you know, <laughs> a couple of great stories when we'd, uh, you know, at Chilliwack, Chilliwack, BC, and uh, we'd we'd do uh, assault boat training, you know. And so he'd be with us in the assault boat, and you know, all of us nerdy officer cadets, you know, we'd pull the assault boat right close to the shore and tried not to jump into the water, you know, to get our boots wet. Right. He would make it a point of jumping, you know, up to his, you know, his calves in water, and ah, the queen of battle, he'd say, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he was a fantastic guy, and uh, and so so it's very kind of cool, and eventually. And he treated us yeah, like young gentlemen, and that's the thing he used to say. You know, you you young gentlemen are going to be someday leaders, and uh, you need to look the part and act the part. And so, you know, he showed us how to tuck our shirts in. And to this day, I still tuck my shirt in the same way that he uh, he told us to do. And uh, uh, and he always was always very very cool. Uh, uh, he had he had a great. He was a, a real professional, you know, and gave you the really made you uh, understand the, the professionalism of our NCOs, you know, and you've, of course, you, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, so he was my, really my second, uh, probably my biggest mentor, but the second one that I really looked at as a, as a model. And then you have them throughout your career, of course, but, uh, but uh, anyway, great. Uh, he was a great guy. So I love that. And then coming back to, uh, to RMC, all the, I love the structure that the, the college gave you. I uh, I was a great I was a pretty damn good student before in high school and then when I got to RMC I, I found it a little harder obviously because the university is different you know you're you're uh, kind of left on your own and uh, and so on but uh, my marks were decent but not great and uh, and I was originally in chemical engineering but I got to a point where after two years at RMC I was unable to. I was really having trouble academically, and uh, it just seemed that the uh, exact sciences were not going into my my very hard brain. So uh, so I switched to arts, and that ended up being uh, very good too because uh, I'd started to lose some of my French, you know, after working in English all this right. time in Thunder Bay and then you know RMC. And so I went into honors French, which allowed me to uh, to really kind of get back to my uh, you know to, to my roots of French and uh, doing lots of literature and lots of uh, reading and lots of writing and uh, uh, discussion. Um, so that was really really good. And uh, so I, I graduated the Bachelor of Arts in French. What was your your junior officer time? When you reflect back on that, I mean, what are the things that really stand out for you um, from that period in your career? First of all, I I, uh, I wore glasses, so I, I would have liked to be a pilot, there's no question. But uh, then I thought, okay, so what's kind of the, what are the the kind of fighter pilots of the Army? And that's kind of the Armored Corps, I thought, you know, so yeah. so tankers and cavalry and all that stuff. So I say, yeah, not that I'm agreeing with you, no, but no. I'm just saying, yeah, is, <laughs> you're yeah, acknowledging. Okay, sure. You're just yep. acknowledging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I went in the Armored Corps, and I and so uh, I uh, really enjoyed my uh, my training, my summer training while I was at RMC, and uh, 
I was very lucky also coming back to RMC. The uh, 76 was the uh, centennial of the college, right? And I happened to be a cadet wing commander. I was, again, very fortunate of uh, taking part um, uh, in all the parades and the celebrations that we did uh, for the centennial of the college. And uh, so my class and I had a wonderful, wonderful time, uh, you know, throughout. So then uh, I did my final uh, phase training in the, in the summer of 76. Uh, uh, with Rick Hillier, who ended up uh, being chief of defense staff. And uh, and then we stayed in Gagetown after our armored phase to do an armored reconnaissance phase. And so I, I got back to, I got to the regiment, I would say, in October of 76. And um, and I, it was fantastic because, of course, the the regiment is, it's 12e Regiment Blindé. It's a French-Canadian regiment in Valcarche. Um and again, the officers and the soldiers there were just fantastic. It's kind of joining a family, and uh, Esprit de Corps was, was outstanding. We had a, an exchange uh, with a French regiment from France, and, uh, and so we had a permanently stationed a French officer in Canada and a Canadian in France at the regiment. And um, so, you know, love joining the family. We worked hard. We had a, you know... But again, the armed forces in those days were not that, you know, I mean, we talk about the forces, how they are today, uh, you know, they're having their challenges. Well, we have, we had challenges even in those days. I mean, I joined uh, a squadron that had no vehicles at one point, you know, and uh, they were just kind of on paper. This was the squadron. We had a squadron commander, a major. We had a, you know, a two IC, a captain. I'm, I'm a lieutenant with my buddy, Don McNeil, who's also a lieutenant. A guy from Newfoundland who's in a French regiment is very cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, but, you know, like we were spending our days, uh, you know, going to the office and uh, reading Jane's Defense Quarterly. And uh, Don used to call it looking at the catalog, you know, <laughs> to see what we could <laughs> oh, buy. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, uh, and so, so the forces were not in that great shape, but. Eventually, um, we I ended up uh, the squadron ended up being re-rolled, and we ended up with uh, I ended up being troop leader for a, a troop of Lynx vehicles, which are, are tracked uh, vehicles based on the M113, uh, doing reconnaissance, sneak and peek, and uh, and uh, loved that. Did that for about a year as troop leader, you know. And then you're working with real soldiers, and you're learning how you know how much initiative they have and how. How they make, uh, you know, they, they make your day. They, they make you look good, and they can also, uh, you know, if you don't treat them properly, they, you know, they, they, uh, they let you know, and, uh, and very interesting. And, of course, I compare that later in my life with commanding Anglophone soldiers versus Francophone soldiers, and, you know, interesting kind of differences there. And I guess one of the things that I found is a Francophone soldiers will... Uh, will be unhappy and they will tell you face to face and very, you know, uh, very loudly. Whereas sometimes, and, uh, Anglophone soldiers will kind of keep it behind and not really say anything until it gets to a point where they get so mad that the, you know, it has to, it comes out, you know, it's a, just a different, you know, they'll, the, the, the French Canadians will argue back and they'll, you know, be pissed off and they'll tell you right up. Whereas the uh, Anglophones, I've always found kind of very uh, much quieter and, uh, you know, we'll kind of keep it inside, be unhappy, and then eventually we'll tell you, you know, just uh, uh, very interesting. But anyway, luckily, uh, I was very blessed to be able to, to, to have that time in, in command of a troop. 
And then luckily again, uh, my name came up to go to France to, to be one of those exchange officers. So, it's all right. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up uh, going for two years in the French regiment uh, as a Canadian, the lone Canadian there. And again, what a what an opportunity. What a great time I had. Uh, we were based in Sedan in the Ardennes, about four hours from Lar. Lar was my support base, so in Lar, Germany. So we had a brigade in Lar and we had a... Uh, a whole air division in uh, Baden-Baden in those days in Germany. So, you know, I was going back and forth when I needed to do administration. And, uh, but otherwise, I mean, you're living in France, you're, uh, you're, and I commanded conscripts there uh, for 14 months, a, a troop of conscripts, uh, and had some reasonable success, but loved it. Made some great friends again that I kept in contact with and that eventually... Our Canadian forces are very small, so uh, you know, yeah, you've got you make a lot of friends and and relationships, and then you realize that you make relationships with militaries of other countries as well. And say one one of the lieutenants I served with as a lieutenant in France, a guy who was actually my mentor to get to get used to being in France to to get a, a, acclimated to the regiment, and we ended up meeting in Unprofor, and he was a lieutenant colonel, and I was a colonel, and you know big hugs and stuff and the force commander saying, well, you guys know each other, you know? Yeah. You know, we'd, we were lieutenants together, you know? So, so the military, uh, military in, in general, or uh, it's a small community that, uh, uh, that you make friends. And if you don't know the person personally, you can, you know, somebody that they know. And, you know, it's always a, I think it's a really important point that, uh, I mean, it's one of the things that the, the military always talks about interoperability. And I think unless, I mean, it's not hard to, to do the, the intellectual exercise of knowing someone ahead of time, you know, building the ark before the flood, so to speak, right? <laughs> but when you actually have that opportunity to have trained with somebody and then you're on operations with them or you see them, uh, you, you've already built that rapport. It's really powerful. Extremely powerful. And I dare say it's it's an issue of trust. Uh, you build you build the rapport and... and Let's just say it's going to be a positive relationship. Yeah. You know, sometimes maybe it doesn't. You know, maybe you say, "Oh, that guy's a jerk, and I never want to work with him again or, or her." But most of the time, it's a very positive thing, and and so the trust that you have there is that you know that you heard that you know this person here made the decision well. Okay, you know, good. It's it must be a good decision, and here's why he or she did it, and so that the trust is there. And, so taking that forward now to one of the things I've always thought about that, that I think is, is still extant and important to this day is how does national defense build trust with other government departments? And I've always thought that there's not enough exchange between national defense and the other departments, i.e. we should have more exchange officers in Ottawa or in different headquarters between other government departments and, and national defense, you know, so we we should send so that people get to know each other before the crisis and before and they understand the the way. And I'm not just saying national defense sending military officers in those departments, but getting those departments to also reciprocate with with officers with uh, with exchange uh, personnel. So. Anyway, long story to say that uh, that I, I really enjoyed uh, my time in France. It was um, uh, it was uh, it was exciting. In those days, we were fighting. Uh, we were getting ready to fight the Soviets. The French were a conscript army. I, I had my troop living together in barracks, and I could go in there in the middle of the night with a whistle 
and they would all be downstairs in 10 minutes and getting the vehicles ready and we could be off to war like very operational army even though because of the, the they were they were paying for their nuclear deterrent you know individual uh individual clothing and you know uh it, we're not that you know was not at the top of the top of the 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 priorities it was uh the nuclear deterrent was a big thing and one of the things you, you said about um the importance of departments or agencies sort of understanding each other and working together i mean i think one of the interesting things about your your career was the the exposure you had to to different jobs in ottawa uh, as a on the sort of first half of your career you know how did how did that sort of being in those rooms in different jobs uh, inform your thinking or influence your thinking about, I guess, the realities of of Ottawa. First of all, it, I it was almost like I couldn't keep a job. So you know, I, I get to Ottawa. I command the regiment eventually in uh, eighty nine to ninety one. I go to Cyprus for a third tour during that time. So working multinationally, I mean, I learned obviously as a lieutenant when I went there uh, in seventy seven, and then I went back in eighty three, and then in in nineteen ninety. So working with other nations was was uh, very interesting. Obviously, two years in France too. I learned, uh, you know, and and of course being supported by uh, by by uh, our our boys and girls in Germany. So multinational side of things is very interesting. But at NDHQ, um, when I got the NDHQ, I ended up uh, I was a non tech trained uh, requirements uh, guy for the armored corps. And so that was first of all learning, you know, okay, what what do you need to to know about vehicles and so on to to give good advice and to manage programs. Again, I I I was supported by uh guys who were fantastic. Um guys who were experts in their own, you know, tech trained majors and captains who uh who did a great job and and uh, again made me look good but then I was given a couple of specific responsibilities for example one of the things uh, was the national procurement you know uh, all the things that we buy to support all the vehicles and uh, for the army at at large so that was a, a huge file that I, I, I you know I dug into it got I always had the the approach that I was not the smartest guy in the room so I I said but what I one thing I can do is I, I can outwork everybody and uh, and so it didn't matter to me if uh, you know I, I would you know stay late, arrive early, stay late, and try to really. Um, and I can say this for you know even at the regiment, I I once I came in as operations officer. I replaced the guy who'd been there for two years who knew everything about operations inside out. And I thought, oh my god, I can never, I'll never be as good as this guy. I said, okay, well, stop worrying about that and get your nose to the grindstone and work your ass off. And so, you know, I made up for my lack of, of smarts by maybe uh, working it a, a bit harder, and uh, and it, it stood me in good stead. But so, so there, I'm I'm a DLR three, Director of Land Requirements three, and then this is during the 125th anniversary of Canada in 1992. So they said uh, the the commander of the army, Kent Foster, happens to know a guy called Bill Pratt, who had been president of the uh, Calgary Stampede, and now was running this cor- uh, Canada One Two Five Corporation set up by the government at arm's length to uh, to do little projects for the 125th anniversary of the of uh, of the country. And uh, so Bill Pratt and Kent are having lunch, and they, uh, Pratt says, "I need a guy who's bilingual that can be my EA, and you know, can you find me somebody?" So. So the long arm of the law comes down and, you know, (laughs) 
they, you know, they offer me the job. <laughs> yeah. No, they said, okay, you go over there and do that. So I, I meet Bill and ended up uh, spending 10 months with the guy who was fantastic, a real leader. And it was like having an MBA, uh, doing an MBA, uh, you know, sitting beside him the whole time. And eventually, you know, I was his EA at the beginning, but eventually I became chief of programs and ended up, you know, managing 38 million out of the 50 they'd been given for, for the Canada 125 project. Loved it. But again, a different job. When I came back, instead of going back to DLR3, they said, we're going to put you in as assistant uh, uh, assistant NDHQ secretariat. So worked for a guy called Bill, Bob Hamilton there, a uh, Navy guy, outstanding guy. But uh, had a chance then as a secret- in the secretariat to go to a daily executive meeting every day. That's the, all the, what they call the L1s now, I guess. Um, the chief of defense staff, deputy minister, and all the the heads of the groups uh, would meet every morning. And we had to write minutes that would go out, like by 10 o'clock, those minutes would be out for everybody to read. So would that and be it, the three stars and the ADMs? Yes. Yeah, okay, so it's a big It's a, it's it's a, a big, big meeting. meeting. Oh, yeah. 20, 20 some people and around the table, and you're taking notes. So you're, you'd go there and you'd, you know, so we had, I think, three or four other lieutenant colonels and myself uh, and we took turns taking notes, but uh, very interesting to watch the, you know, uh, at the beginning it was uh, John de Chastelain was the chief of defense staff and uh, Bob Fowler was the, uh, uh, was the deputy minister. And then eventually uh, John Anderson became CDS and then, uh, and then we had the Chastelain, the sequel. You know, right when he yeah, came 2.0 back, yeah, back. 2.0, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and so, uh, very, very interesting, and I developed a, a great deal of uh, of um, respect for for these guys and gals that were working at that level. Uh, amazing people, um, and and you know, as a fly on the wall, you're listening to them and watching their their in, interpersonal relationships and how they're uh, jumping in and. Uh, um, you know, talking to each other and about things that are going on. Um, anyway, eventually I get promoted out of there to full colonel and, and end up going uh, as chief of staff, chief of operations for Unprofor for, uh, in, in the former Yugoslavia. How was, uh, how was Yugoslavia different from Cyprus? For Cyprus, of course, a very stable mission with, you know, very clearly defined, uh, Belligerence, uh, lines of uh, lines of confrontation. Nevertheless, our, our boys and girls doing uh, patrolling in between, you know, uh, down a road where on the left you've got the Greeks and on the right you've got the Turks, and they're both armed to the teeth and looking through bunkers. And our, our, our little guys are carrying their radio and a you know soft cap, uh, patrolling between the two. And uh, whereas Yugoslavia was a whole. Ball, different ball of wax because, of course, I'd been in the daily executive meeting listening to the updates every day on what right. the mission was doing. Yeah, of course. Uh, still not understanding, and and you know, I don't know if you you know if you've been in this position before, but you're listening to this every day, but you still don't understand really what it's like on the ground until you deploy. And when I deployed, holy shit, that was that was different. That was really uh, an eye opener, and because you know, no. Well, first of all, belligerents are all over the place. They're kind of certainly three main factions, and you've got partisans of all types, and uh, and uh, no clearly defined lines of confrontation. Um, our troops are um, our troops. The, you know, 
rules of engagement are not that well developed, I would say, also at this point. Um, although after Somalia, they, you know, uh, there was a lot of uh, a work done to to make sure that our that the rules of engagement were well known. And one of the things I always thought that was amazing that that I used to say that Americans uh, sometimes went too deep into rules of engagement, and they wrote stuff like, you know, you will you will not, you know, torture. And I thought, why would why would we ever torture anybody? And then when Somalia happened, I said, well, maybe the Americans have got it right that we need to remind people that they don't, you know, they don't do that stuff. You just take for granted that Canadians would never do such a thing. But so yeah, Yugoslavia, big big eye opener. Uh, being there for a year though, I, I really enjoyed it and kind of. I joined the headquarters in Zagreb um, when there was really, we were about to move into a new building. They just set up the headquarters and, and moved into a building. I I went in there and it was great because it was, again, starting all, a mission almost from scratch, putting the team together, uh, deciding, you know, where are we going to put the map? You know, what what room are we going to go into? No, that room's not good enough. And I, I, I you know, and I, I got to, I guess... Um, I got to exercise a lot of my own initiative to to be able to put this together, and I I loved it because when I arrived, the 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 duty officer was in a small room with a telephone, not a map, nothing, and you know he would get phone calls from New York saying, "Hey, what's happening on the ground?" And you know, a Kenyan would have to get up and go and find out what the hell is going on, and you know. So I said, "No, no, we have to be operational," and then ended up that we knocked a wall down in this and it put this great massive map on the wall. That's where we brief the force commander every morning. I would brief him. It was it was so exciting to start, you know, something from nothing. And eventually, the mission grew to thirty five thousand people. You know, I was a so we had six subordinate headquarters. We had uh, the four areas in Croatia. We had Bosnia and we had Macedonia. Those were our subordinate commands. And one of the things that I uh, I took as a as a responsibility, as uh, as the chief of operations, I need to know needed to know what was going on on the ground, and so I, once a week I would go to one of the subordinate headquarters and and uh, walk you know walk around and see the see the troops and see what they were doing and and get a sense for the. Uh, so that allowed me then to to come back and when I was doing the briefing to the force commander in the morning, you know, I could talk from experience and I'd been there and I'd spoken to the commanders and and the uh, the operations guys and. So just loved it. Uh, loved that. It was a pretty, uh, you know, pretty hot time too. I mean, um, this is during the Medak pocket, which has been topical now because, of course, it was September 1993. Right. Right. And uh, and so I uh, I was delegated by the force commander to uh, actually I I wrote myself and a colleague of mine, this French guy that I would met when I was in France, who was an executive assistant of the force commander. Him and I together wrote the uh, the agreement that the Croats were going to sign about the withdrawal on my computer printed it and that's what we that's what they signed eventually you know they eventually signed it uh, and then the force commander said well I want you to go down there and take command of the uh, of the troops that are going to be down there and so Jim Calvin and his battalion uh, you know was there and uh, and then that, of course you know what happened with the uh, as the Croatians were withdrawing they were doing a scorched earth policy and, and everything and uh, and uh, so Calvin did a great job. He's fantastic. His battalion was was out, outstanding too. And I didn't know until just recently that Wayne Eyre was there. 
Yeah, he was. It's just, you know, here you go. The people I've met that were that were in that fight in the Madak pocket, I mean, uh, they're, they're certainly, you know, they're proud of what they did, but they they don't advertise it too much. I mean, it's not a well-known conflict, and, and I'll certainly link some background, some history in the show notes so, so Canadians can give a bit of a read and learn some more about their own their own sort of military history because yeah. it's not really spoken that much about and it it merits greater sort of knowledge and uh, and discussion. Oh, it sure does and uh, and when you uh, when you look at, you know, what came out of it and uh, you know, eventually the uh, the International Crime Tribunal for Yugoslavia, uh, you know, I I mean, those guys like Graham Ademi, the the British or the uh, the Brigadier General, uh, the Croatian Brigadier General, who eventually was was uh, not found not guilty uh was tried in in croatia was uh you know is is uh, a guy i met a guy that that we negotiated with and uh carol off wrote a great book called the ghosts of medak pocket i don't know if you read it but uh i have not but, it's, uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a it's a very easy read and uh, and she's great and uh, and her and i talked a few times about it and she's really uh, anyway it's a good book and uh so I uh, I encourage everyone to read it. How did your your time in Unperfor um, inform your your time in Kosovo? Uh, again, a whole different. Well, the the, the first thing is you know you uh, in in Unperfor met a bunch of Serbs and uh, you know got to know a little bit of the Serbian mindset and how they reacted to things. And of course, the whole issue of Kosovo was Serbian versus Albanian. Uh, ethnic uh, tensions and and so on so uh, the other thing is i talked about unperfor being uh, you know kind of a at a you know you think about unperfor we had lou mckenzie who opened sarajevo a year before i got there uh the mission had kind of morphed uh, first it was just bosnia and then it was just the uh, the united nations protected areas and then eventually they said we're going to form this unprofor is going to be look after all of those together in a preventive mission in, in Macedonia. So um, so it was, when I got there, it was like a, like starting again from a blank sheet of paper. Kosovo was truly a blank sheet of paper because, um, as you know, there'd been a lot of strife in Kosovo between Albanians who were the majority in the province, um, some 2 million and only something like 10% were were uh, Serbian, uh, and so uh, and but at that time the Serbs were uh, were really running the country, the the province like a like a uh, a police state. You know they they were all the mayors of, of the of the uh, of the towns, all the you know the heads of the of the of the school boards. You know every administrator was a was was run by the Serbs, and the Albanians were in a submissive state, if you wish, and. and uh, and uh, Milosevic had reinforced uh, Kosovo with a whole bunch of uh, military uh, and police uh, forces uh, to to kind of keep it keep it locked down. So the um, before I got there, so this is in '98, uh, all kinds of you know they set up this new Kosovo Liberation Army. So uh, you know terrorists, uh, and you know one one person's terrorist is another person's uh, freedom fighter, right? So it depends how you look at the thing, but. So the Albanians had these, uh, the KLA, they had a guy called Rugova who wanted to, he was kind of the Gandhi of the place. He wanted to really do this very quietly, peacefully, but it hadn't been working. So the KLA came up 
and um, and so fighting between the KLA and the, and the Serbs. And at one point, the guy who did the Dayton Accords in uh, in uh, Bosnia uh, comes in Holbrook, Ambassador Holbrook, and meets with Milosevic, and uh, he said, you know, we we need to stop that. Negotiates with him and says. Uh, we're going to set up a uh, a verification mission called the Kosovo Verification Mission of 2,000 civilians who are going to verify that you are pulling out all the Serbs that you've reinforced the place with, all the, the forces. Um, so that's how this comes to comes to pass. The, and it's going to be an OSCE mission, not a UN mission. So I had never worked for the OSCE. I didn't know basically what it was, but OSCE at that time was an association of 55 countries, but not the Serbs had been thrown out. So 54 countries um, that uh, that did mostly uh, election monitoring, uh, small missions, uh, humanitarian missions. And so for the first time, uh, it was going to be a kind of a real verification, peacekeeping type mission, the largest mission they'd ever done. So they set up uh, in Vienna, where the OSCE headquarters is, they set up uh, the Kosovo Verification Mission Support Unit that was going to be the place where, uh, that was going to prepare the mission, get it ready to deploy into uh, Kosovo. And they asked this uh, two-star British uh, General Dravinkovic, um, uh, they call him DZ, first first letter or last letter, because it was easier to pronounce than Dravinkovic. And DZ uh, is uh, working in Vienna, and uh, eventually was going to be the head of the deputy head of mission for operations in in Kosovo. And uh, so um, he gives a call to uh, to Bill Leach, who was commander of the army at the time. I was uh, one star working for Bill as the director general of land staff, and uh, he said to Bill, "You know, can you send me somebody to take my place in Vienna?" so that I can deploy. And he said, oh, you should be there only for maybe six weeks or whatever. So Leach says to me, you want to go? I said, absolutely. So jump in a plane with my suitcase going to Vienna, right? So I've got, you know, nice clean clothes and yeah. I'm going to be in Vienna. Nice so, town. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, bring stuff to go to the opera, right? right. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's very much Vienna, yeah. <laughs> So I go to the headquarters, I'm there for about three weeks, and then uh, the people are starting to talk about, you know, who's going to command the, the five different regional centers that are going to be uh, of the mission, which will each uh, fall into a, uh, an organizations that they had already deployed, the, called the Kosovo Diplomatic Observer Missions. Um, and so there are five, five different uh, provinces, or not provinces, uh, prefectures in Kosovo, uh, in the province of Kosovo, so they were going to have one uh, one regional center in each one of those five, and each was going to be commanded by somebody uh, from a. And they decided, oh well, it's not going to be uh, the contact group nations. The contact group was, you know, Germany, uh, France, uh, UK, um, US, and Russia. They said it will not be one of those right. guys. So other nations will command. So of course I'm in Vienna. I'm uh, I guess I'm uh, you know easy to, to, uh, to so it turns out the OC asks Canada if I can be deployed as the as the commander of the first uh, the first regional center in Prizren, which is right on the border with Albania, and uh, yeah, on the border with Albania. So uh, so obviously I, I thought this was you know a great opportunity, and I uh, so I come back to Canada for a week, pick up my you know clean underwear, and and uh, and then go back, and this time of course ready to deploy on on the ground, end up uh, you know arriving in Kosovo and taking command of this thing. So 
Coming back to your question, very long answer. How did it inform me? Well, I knew what Serbians were like, I, or I, I thought I'd, I'd at least let's say that I had developed a certain knowledge of, of uh, the culture and understanding a little bit of their background and the whole history of, of the region. Um, but I did not know the specific history of Kosovo, which was, was something I found very interesting. So I uh, ended up... Uh, Ended up doing, uh, so I was supposed to be there until, well, for six months, the whole, you know, and I'd already been in, in Vienna for, for three weeks. And I was there until the situation got so much out of hand in other sectors than mine, because I must say I, I, we were managing to keep a good lid on things in 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 my uh, regional center um, that um, that we they were afraid that we were going to be taken hostage by the Serbs in those days. and. And there was, you know, the whole threat of, uh, of an air uh, air campaign, and uh, so the OSC decided to pull us out in uh, in March of uh, '99, and so we were pulled out and uh, reconstituted in Macedonia, and then they uh, they said, well, we're putting together a mission to go and look after the refugees that Milosevic has started pushing out, and uh, again, very luckily, I was asked to, to go take a the refugee task force together and and go to Albania to look after the refugees. It's one of those things, Chris, that's so interesting. We always talk about, you know, giving clear direction, clear orders, you know, and then the military, we really... So here's, how is this for a mission? Uh, you know, I want you to take 75 people, 15 vehicles, go to Albania and see if you can help. That's my mission. So, so... The beauty of that is you kind of write your own ticket, right? You write, you write your own mission, and how can we... And so the, the approach I always took was, how do I add value and not be an obstacle? So I get my 75 folks together, and the Brits, and a multinational group. The Russians had decided to pull out, so they're going back to Russia. So I had people from uh, lots lots of nations. Great group. You know, and the first thing you do, of course, you learn that when you're a lieutenant. First thing you do is you... You're going to be my two IC, you know, right? Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so we took 75 vehicles. We deployed to uh, to Albania. We ended up having um, having people at each of the 12 or 13 prefectures uh, in Albania because the Albanians took a different approach than the Macedonians. Macedonians, as the refugees were coming across, they would put them together in, in camps along the border, whereas the Albanians would bring people all the way through Albania and deploy them and put the refugees in each of the of the prefectures kind of among families host families which is interesting because you know Albania in those days 2 million people the the most um, the 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 poorest country in Europe they had basically nothing but they were willing to share it with with the the refugees coming across by the time I left there were 400,000 refugees across uh, across Albania when you think of a population of 2 million hosting 400,000 refugees it's it's pretty uh, pretty incredible. What was it like being in in the center of a humanitarian crisis of that size? It was heart ripping. It was really heart ripping. And of course, you know, you 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 work. You, you don't count your hours there. It's not a you know, it's not an eight to four job, as you know. And you're uh, it, it really uh, it really grates on you. Really gets you down. Really, and you and I, I remember many times. I mean. Uh, you know, being all by myself in my office and, and uh, you know, bawling like a baby and having, you know, also uh, incidents or uh, anecdotes where you just can't believe the, uh, you know, the, 
the people's reaction and the you know people's inhumanity to people. And I think one of the notes I was, I was making earlier is that you know what what you learn or what I certainly brought back from that is the people are always the ones that that you know uh, that that take the brunt of, of all this. You know, war. Yeah, we military we're trained to do this. We're you know trained to fight, uh, to advance, to withdraw, to you know to to picket or whatever. But the normal people, if, as soon as something happens, you know, and these people, especially in Kosovo, as soon as something would happen, they would pick up, you know, whatever they could carry, and they would just move on to the next village until things quieted down, and then come back. And you'd see them, you know, as soon as the, the shelling stopped, okay, they're outside with a broom, and they're cleaning the place up, and incredible, uh, you know, uh, ability to, to come back from these things. But the people were always the ones that, that uh circuit cup you know they're the ones that really take it on the chin and uh so it's, it was quite tough one of the one of the anecdotes i think i might have told you about earlier but uh was um uh so i'm in my headquarters in in uh in uh in albania and uh and the people were coming across the the border with uh with kosovo uh, the refugees and they were the Serbs were pushing them across with you know they take away all their papers uh, if they were in a car they take away the license plate uh, and they would just push them across so you imagine these people are refugees they have no there's no record of them you know they your driver's license has been taken away you know who knows your name is Chris what you know who the hell knows you know mm-hmm. it's one of, it's you think about that and of course, a lot of them had mis- been mistreated. So every, so they would come across, and we would also the the other task we were doing at the time is we were taking interviews. We were interviewing them on how they had been treated by the by the Serbs, by the people. And you know, a lot of them said, "Well, you know, they took all the men away, and uh, they left us." And you know, the women would say, uh, "And we haven't seen, you know, my my uncle. I haven't seen my dad, or I haven't seen my husband." Uh, and you know, we'd make notes, and all those interviews would go to the Hague. Right, and, to the war crimes tribunal. Yeah. And Louise Arbeau was our prosecutor there. And I think that's what eventually allowed her or made, made her able to to indict uh, Milosevic. And eventually ended up going to testify against him uh, and uh, on two other occasions to uh, other perpetrators of bad things. Anyway, um, one of the good things was the 15 vehicles that I took with me, we were in orange vehicles in, in Kosovo while we were there. And after we were evacuated, I took those same vehicles and went to Albania, Albania. So the refugees that were coming across had seen us patrol for months in their areas. And it was a real, like, you know, a real, these patrols were really uh, personal things, you know, and we would stop, talk to the people and we had interpreters with us all the time. And, and so when they were coming across as refugees, they would see our vehicles and it'd say, Oh, the KVM is here, you know, and, almost like seeing an old friend and giving them a little bit of a little bit of uh of you know positive reinforcement and that things were going to be okay and you know uh and for the longest time i knew the phrase i'm from prison you know in albanian right and so the refugees would meet them and they'd you know say you know they'd talk to you in albanian i couldn't understand but i would say i'm from prison in albanian and they 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 you know it was very very cool anyway but so it was a it was a tough mission um so I was going to say this this one incident. I mean, I'm in my office, and these two young guys who had been our local employees in in prison come to my office, and uh, young young guys, probably in their twenties, early twenties, and uh, I knew one of them just had a, a, a child, 
and they had just been pushed across by the uh, by the Serbs, and uh, this this came to see me, and they said, "Sir," and they could speak English, and they said, uh, "We are uh, we're going to join the Kosovo Liberation Army. We're going to train, and we're going to go back and fight for our country." Well, rip my heart out, and you know, give these kids a big hug, and oh, you know, started crying. <laughs> just you know, it was, uh, and again. You think about Canadians and coming back to, you know, an hour ago, what I said about being so lucky to live in Canada. And unless you see this kind of uh, desire to fight for your country and to uh, to be ready to put your life on the line, you know, we talk about it, of course, in the military, unlimited liability and everything, but these guys, they were living it right there. Pretty incredible. Yeah, it is one of those things I think you have to, you have to see to understand um, you have to to really be in those environments for for it to to resonate on the level that you just you just described. It's it's tough to make it an intellectual exercise of saying, "Oh, I can kind of understand that," unless you actually go through it. Um, now, after Kosovo, I mean, I think you had another really interesting sort of operational experience that. Um, uh, that that I I wasn't aware about before we we spoke, and you you were in Tampa with Central Command, which was controlling um, U.S. operations in the Middle East uh, right after nine eleven. Uh, how how did you end up down in the center of all that? Well, uh, so I'm assistant uh, DCDS. So um, the the deputy chief of defense staff was a guy called uh, Greg Madison, which many many folks know, a naval a vice admiral, great guy. And I'm I'm the assistant to him as a two star, and um, when nine eleven happened, I happened to be actually on a, doing a, a running a, a promotion board in in Gatineau, and uh, we see this happening on the on the news, and so of course, drop everything and come back to uh, come back to the headquarters, and we're in the middle of the whole. You know the airplanes are coming down. The, uh, the we're we're landing them all, and I'm as a, as you know, in DCDS was the operations guy at the time, right? And so Greg is there, I'm there, and we're the joint staff are all around us, and uh, we're in contact with NORAD, and uh, you know, keeping the prime minister informed and everything. It's it, you know, a real crisis. And in fact, my wife Barbara was in the uh, financial control center, and uh, and she, you know, so she was involved in in it as well, and. Uh, um, so very exciting stuff. So as time goes on, of course, we're, we're now, you know, reopening the, uh, reopening the sky, but, uh, there are a couple of, uh, incidents that happen, uh, air, airplanes, you know, that are not, uh, squawking the right thing. And, you know, one of them lands, I don't know if you remember this one, they, they landed in, uh, in, uh, I think in Yellowknife. And you know, there's a lonely M. There's only the R- lonely RCMP guy who goes to see the airplane, and he's the only guy there, right? And, and turned out, you know, that they just uh, malfunctioned the, the the thing. But anyway, very cool times. But uh, and then um, uh, at the beginning of October, uh, so nine eleven, right? Uh, September eleventh, and then the beginning of October, uh, General Hainaut, who was the chief of defense staff at the time, said, uh, "I need to send somebody to." Tampa to the headquarters of Central Command, commanded by a guy called Tommy Franks at the time, four-star U.S. Uh, general. And uh, I need to send somebody to uh, to offer packages to uh, to uh, to the U.S. for the coalition of the willing to in the fight against terrorism. So uh, so he says this to to Greg Madison. Greg says, you know, I can send Mazenov, uh, and of course, yeah, very happy to go. 
And uh, so he sends me and uh, a guy from the Air Force and a guy from the, uh, uh, and a one star from the Air Force and a, a one star from the Navy. So the three of us go down there uh, and we arrive on the 3rd of October um, and are met by uh, the 2IC, the second in command to uh, to uh, Tommy Franks, a guy called Rifle DeLong, General DeLong, a Marine guy, big gruff guy picks me up and we you know we end up going down in a in a challenger you know and we land right there at the at mcdill right uh air force base anyway and um so i go to meet uh tommy franks we hit it off a great guy uh cigar smoker so we end up smoking a cigar together you know very uh very cool guy um and so for the time we're there, we're negotiating. Well, not negotiating. We're saying, okay, what can we offer? Uh, you know, what would the U.S. like? And uh, and I'm con- corresponding back to Canada and, you know, on the DCDS side and saying, okay, what can we, uh, what kind of packages? So one of the first things we did was we rerouted a ship that had been with with the Stanap 4 Lant, the uh, the Navy, uh, the, the Standing Navy, Naval Group, and uh, and so on. So we're looking at, okay, can we send a battalion group? What can we send? And, you know, we, we're discussing packages that Canada could provide to the uh, to the war. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we're working flat out during the whole day kind of thing. And then, uh, and uh, eventually on the 7th of October, um, 7th of October uh, was a Sunday. So the 6th of October, uh, we go into the, you know, Tommy Franks would have a normal meeting, uh, uh, 9 o'clock meeting of of his staff. And uh, so he'd been a U-shaped table, and Tommy's in the middle. And on, on the right side is a uh, sign says Canada. The left side is a sign says UK. And then beside it is, uh, you know, uh, Australia. And then all the two-star U.S. generals and who are and admirals who are on the joint staff, the heads of the different uh, the different uh, heads. So, uh, so I mean, you know, Canada's right there. We really we're an important part. And I'm so I'm sitting beside Tommy Franks and every morning at nine o'clock. And then on the sixth uh, of uh, of October, which is a Saturday, the uh, I'm sitting there. We're waiting for Franks. He comes in and he's wearing flip flops and uh, shorts and, uh, and a Hawaiian shirt. He says, "You know, we've been working flat out for you know three weeks now." He said, "You know, planning this thing, and I've been telling these guys they should relax a little bit." So, so today was you know so. So anyway, ha ha ha. We go ahead and uh, do the the normal morning brief. And the next day is the Sunday, and there isn't supposed to be no meeting at nine o'clock. So I say to my two one stars, I say, okay, tomorrow. Uh, it's Sunday. I said, you know, let's come in in civvies and, you know, I'd like to go to church and, uh, and, you know, then we can maybe do a bit of sightseeing, but we'll work, but, you know, uh, come in in civvies. So yeah, good idea. Good idea. So the next day we come in, I come in there at eight o'clock and then I'm wearing a Hawaiian shirt and, and, uh, and, uh, chinos and, uh, a young corporal pops his head in the office says, oh, actually general, uh, general Franks wants to have a meeting at nine o'clock. Okay. So. You know where this is going. Yeah, well. <laughs> so I walk in. I walk in, and of course they're all assembled except for Franks, and they're all in full combat uniforms. And I'm in my Hawaiian shirt, so I sit down at my place, you know, a little bit sheepish. And I notice that, notice that on the by VTC on the on the screen in front of us is uh, Donald Rumsfeld and all the commanders deployed in the in the mission area. So you know. And then walks in Tommy Franks 
fully dressed, of course, in his combats. And and he sits beside us and he sits uh, beside me in a, at the head of the table and says, he said, uh, at noon today, the first uh, Tomahawk land a- attack missiles are going to land on Kabul. Holy crap, this is the start of the of the war. And so uh, Rumsfeld says, uh, you know, by VTC says, you know, I'm sorry, uh, General, uh, President Bush wanted to be here, but he was pulled pulled away at the last minute. But he asked me to pass on, you know, your you know, best, uh, you know, best of luck and everything. And Tommy Franks proceeds to go to all the commanders on the ground. Is everything okay? Are we ready to go? Everything's fine. Yep, yep. Everything's good to go. A1. And so meeting ends, I run back to my office, and uh, we had this two, three uh, telephones. I don't know. Do they still have them? Those, those, um, those have, secure telephones? Whatever, yeah, whatever the, the current version of it is. But uh, they were they were in uh, in use up to not too long ago. Yeah. Anyway, there's telephones with a key, a secure key, and you had to, you know. Anyway, so I call I call General Heno on the Stu three. We just uh, got the word that at noon today uh, hostilities will begin, and uh, so he said, "Great, I'm going to call the Prime Minister." So General Heno apparently called the Prime Minister, and I heard later, and in fact, General Heno himself told me that he spoke to to Mr. Chrétien, and. Uh, Christian said to him, oh, well, that's probably why George Bush wants to talk to me at, uh, at 11 o'clock. So Canada, because of our presence there and, you know, the Canadian forces were well ensconced in the U.S. Uh, mission, uh, managed to get a lot of, of credit. And the Canadian forces got the credit of advising the government before the actual operation. So that was a, and you know, again, a very historical moment. I mean, you're sitting there and you know that... Uh, you know, you're gonna. It's going to be the start of a of a huge operation, uh, a huge campaign, and uh, so anyway, um, I think a day later, two days later, we uh, repatriated back. I left one of the guys there, or maybe he went back later. But uh, um, we came back to Canada, and uh, and you know, things went on, and it was a, a pretty high time in those days. Yeah. Now, I'd like to maybe talk a little bit about uh, what you did after you retired from the forces, because your service of uh, in uniform um, is, you know, is pretty well known. Uh, but I think you have a really interesting job when you retired. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, uh, of course, I went to NATO, spent four years there. Um, again, talking about starting things from a blank sheet of paper. We stood up the headquarters, the NATO headquarters in Norfolk, that didn't exist before. It was a, a naval headquarters, and uh, and we changed it into a transformational headquarters, and so that was pretty exciting too. Um, but then uh, the the issue was okay. I was turning fifty three. Um, I thought, okay, you know, maybe I'll have a chance to be chief of defense staff. If that doesn't work out, I think you know, I think I'll I'll pull the plug and you know be done. It turns out that Rick Hillier got chosen for chief of defense staff. Fantastic guy. Just the guy we needed at the right time. Uh, and he asked me to come back as his deputy chief of defense staff. I, I said, actually, Rick, no, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to stay here for, uh, you know, one more year and then, and then I'll retire. So that'll give you a chance to kind of solidify your plot of who's going to replace me and the, and the whole, the whole, uh, senior officers plot. So, um, uh, so that's what I did. Came back to Canada and moved to Hamilton um, because my my wife is from Hamilton originally. I thought that would be a good move. She didn't think it was that great a move, but anyway. One morning, I, I was in contact with Rick, and uh, you know, and one morning I went to Ottawa. I, I think I was there for something else, but I uh, 
ended up that we were having breakfast together. And uh, he said to me, listen, he said, uh, we're reopening Saint-Jean. And uh, Gord O'Connor was our Minister of Defense. I'd known Gord O'Connor. Uh, I was a Lieutenant Colonel. He was a Brigadier General. And uh, and we had, uh, you know, I'd worked for him at that time, so I knew him well. And um, Rick said, we're op- reopening Saint-Jean. The government has announced that it's reopening, so uh, I need uh, I need somebody to go as either the the uh, chair of the board of governors or the uh, the principal academic director. And I said, well, I said, Rick, I'm not a uh, not an academic, you know, I have a master's degree, but I don't have any, uh, you know, any do- I don't have a doctorate, and I've never worked in. It. And he said, well, I I know that, but he said I, I need you more for the organizational uh, abilities, and he said to to get this thing started at least. So I said, okay. So I ended up going there, arriving in December '07, uh, and meeting, you know, a bunch of the folks that already had been there, uh, the professors and so on. And uh, and uh, so again, another place where you kind of start from the from yeah, ground from zero, scratch. yeah, from scratch, and just uh, stand it up and and so create a team and uh, and build on what they've already accomplished. And uh, and so I really, really enjoyed that. Jumped on uh, on that with two feet. Uh, my friend uh, John Cowan was the principal at RMC, so uh, him and I were working closely together, and I was, you know, using a lot of his uh, his knowledge and, and experience, uh, and he helped me greatly. And I also had some fantastic uh, professors who uh, were in Saint Jean that I was able to to lean on for the academic side of things, but on the organizational side of things, I was able to, you know, do a few things that that would help the college and uh, stand up. And uh, a great commandant uh, was there at the time. The first commandant was uh, François Pion, an uh, airy guy, a full colonel, uh, really good. And eventually, you know, I ended up, you know, with uh, Guy Maillet and uh, and Jenny Carignan and. All the other commandants that came after uh, Simon Bernard, I better name them all or they'll be pissed off. Yeah, it's, and, and it's always Ger- a challenge, right? Gervais, Car- <laughs> Gervais Carpentier was the last. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah, Carp was there. Yeah, the, Carp yeah, was fantastic. Yeah. And in fact, I just had a note from Carp, so a great guy. And all this to say is that it was a, a really great experience. Um, and obviously, I knew my place, but uh, on the other hand, uh, they also I was able to maybe mentor the the commandants a little bit as well, and uh, which was a, a lot of fun. And uh, to this, they have a great relationship with all of them. They are, they were all great young officers, uh, up and coming, and uh, um, so so really loved it, really loved it. And uh, the college, you know, we managed to get it back to university level. And uh, by the time I left in 2018, we had uh, the charter was back on, and we were uh, about to graduate the first class of. Uh, of graduates from the college, so so it's continuing. It's a small college, but really doing uh, doing well as we speak. So, how was I've, I've wondered this, um, you know, from my my time in working at Royal Military Colleges. How was the relationship with with the city, with the town of Saint Jean? Because la cooperation, I think, is a really interesting construct, and it it seems like it's a really good relationship between the the unit and the and the town. It's a fantastic relationship, and the, the this was a very uh, this was a very smart thing that National Defense did. Sometimes they get it right. Uh, when they closed the college in '93, they decided to set up this corporation that was going to look after the. They handed the the site over to the city. The city created this corporation that was going to run the site because it's a historic site. It's a historic site. Yeah, yeah it's the it's the second oldest uh, fully. Uh, military occupied site other than Quebec City in in North America, so you know pretty impressive and and so it was important to to 
So they were using it while the college was closed as a uh, a meeting uh, space, a training space, like the Sûreté du Québec would use it sometimes to do classes, okay. and they, yeah. they'd use the uh, the um, uh, the, uh, the the parade square to you know to do their anti uh, anti emote you know anti, the riot, uh, riot, uh, riot squad yeah. training and so on. So um, so so this cooperation when uh, National Defense said we'd like to come back. Uh, they said fine, uh, and, and the corporation then ended up providing, getting a contract to provide all logistics support for the the college while it's on there. So instead of having uh, CE guys, you know, uh, construction engineering and uh, and uh, you know, kind of the public service running uh, the kitchens and all that stuff, it's all done through the corporation. And the corporation is they have got a board, you know, board of directors and a CEO. And so, uh, and it's a non-profit organization, and any but any profit they make, they have to turn back into the national defense. So it's fantastic because you know they the the buildings are kept up to date perfectly. Uh, there's never, and I'm sure you as D cadets there must have had some fun at in Kingston with these things sometimes. But the cadets like the 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 food is outstanding. Because it's all contract, you know, it's mm. it's run by the corporation, and and even the uh, the gym now is completely run by the corporation. So the services are are first class, and I've always thought this is a great model that could work at RMC as well, uh, you know. And uh, because what's interesting is when they created created the corporation, a lot of the folks that were working in the logistics side of the college ended up getting out. You know, getting retiring from the military and staying on as members of the corporation okay. employees. Yeah. So they know the they know the military, they know the the place, and uh, and if you get a good CEO like they have they've had now, um, it's uh, you know uh, he he's able to make a real great uh, team to uh, to control this thing. So. So the reason I took the job though was because I, I we always thought Barbara and I I discussed this and I uh, always thought that I had probably enough enough juice in the tank to do one more big job you know full time uh, at 53 and uh, so that's what I ended up doing and uh, ended up doing it for 10 and a half years loved it the academic world is so different you know you don't get a phone call at three in the morning saying your professors you know I, I lost my slide rule you know I don't know if this you'll use them but there's never an emergency you know I mean it's it's very it's very uh, it's very controlled and you know structured and um, and it's research and it's academics and it's and it's again it's a different it's a real leadership challenge because academics are a little bit like NGOs they never want to be synchronized they never want to be you know they don't like to work as teams they like to arrive in their office and do research and you know be left independent and and all that but if you use your leadership pro- properly you, you can actually bring bring these guys together and guys and gals and make a real team out of them which which we we had a great time doing well, there's certainly a, a thread that runs throughout um, your professional career, whether it be you know talking about you know, going from Quebec to Saskatchewan and Thunder Bay, and and having the understanding between how say francophone or anglophone soldiers think or communicate, and then these different missions you've had, you've had that, and it, it clearly sort of served you well um, all the way through the ability to uh, to, to navigate those situations. A lot of it's by luck, though, you know, <laughs> just yeah. you get, you get yeah. put in these positions sure. and you, you, you sink or swim. And, and again, I come back to, you know, sometimes I and I've always thought, you know, OK, you know, I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to work my ass off to get to know it. And you work, you try to work harder than everybody else. And 
you know. Yeah, I think that. Well, I think that that is probably more than the luck. Is it? it's the hard work. I mean, there's no doubt you can end up in a job. I think that is, you're maybe more suited to, to your aptitudes, yeah. which then you generally like more. But there's just so much that you can overcome with with hard work and perseverance. Yeah. Um, there's no doubt. One of the things I. I was sure at the regiment, for example, as a captain, as a senior captain, I thought I would come back as the adjutant of the regiment. I thought I would be great at paperwork and all that stuff. Ended up being the operations officer. And I loved it, you know. <laughs> and then I used it as, you know, I I would always find a an operational reason to, to stick my nose into everything, you know. Said, so, oh, yeah. You know, an operations officer has to know about that. And when I became a squadron commander, I knew a little bit less than the operations officer, you know. So, so you know, you never know how things are going to go. But I I was very lucky. I had some fantastic um, people who uh, worked for me who made me look good. I had outstanding mentors who looked after me and gave me advice and told me when I was going awry and, and you know, got balled out. I got balled out by warrant officers when I was a, you know, I, as a young captain. And uh, I remember my really great warrant officer called Red Hayes. I was in Gagetown as an instructor and uh, I was a troop leader, sorry, in Gagetown. And, and uh, one day he came in and his name was Red Hayes because he had a red, uh, red hair and he had a temper to match it, you know, and he closed the door and he freaking came aboard me and his voice got a two octaves higher when he was screaming, you know, and. So I said, Warrant, you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, but fantastic, the the ability of these guys to, you know, to make me see where I've gone wrong and, you know, not go two ways about it, you know. Anyway. So you, you finished off in, the, in your public service career and, and you know, now between um, your remarks at the Vimy Gala, a number of op-eds, I mean, you're now in the public spotlight. And what, you know, what do you... What do you hope to achieve or, you know, why have you sort of stepped into into the ring on uh, in this way? Because certainly, I mean, after how many years of uniformed and public service did you have? 45. Yeah. So after 45 years, I mean, there's there's ample reason to, to not. I'm just curious as to why yeah. you decided to. Well, I, I think... I must say, I, I think the last 10 years of my 45 in the public service, um, what I saw happening inside the Canadian forces um, and then to the country in general really disappointed me. It disappointed me and it made me angry, frankly. It, it, made, me, uh, it made me realize that, that some of the things that were going on uh, I did not agree with and I was just very disappointed in, in where our country was headed. Extremism and uh, extremism on the left or on the right is is wrong, and it's and and so what I saw, um, what I saw made me made me angry, and so I guess it's it uh, it built to the point where I was extremely honored to receive the Vimy Award, to be in, nominated, and, and to by General Hinault, by the way, and then to to be chosen. I, I uh, it's an honor that I never expected in my life to 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 receive. Uh, but I also saw it as an opportunity, and I and so so the speech, the Vimy speech. As soon as I heard that I was uh, nominated and, and that I was uh, chosen, uh, the, you had to remember there's two. I was the 2020 2020 nominee, and the Vimy uh, the presentation was only in 2022 in the fall of 2022, okay. right? So there were two years because of COVID. 
so I had I was stewing with those two years. What am I going to do? What am I going to say? What kind of a speech am I going to make? Uh, you know, uh, this is my opportunity to say how I feel, and how will I how will I do this? Will I do it as a uh, let's say as a partisan or as a Canadian? And I think at this point I had decided that I was going to be speak as a Canadian, and what I wanted to do was to just begin a debate. I didn't know I did not want to. Uh, call anybody names or you know I didn't want to attack anyone personally but I wanted to speak as a Canadian really give my sense of where we are as a country and so you know so I I drafted that speech very carefully over many months um, making notes and then the final kind of two weeks really put it together and I and Barbara was incredible in helping me and you know uh, she's she's very uh, very good at, uh, at at writing and so forth. So so it was a real hard work, and but I felt that this this was an opportunity to make to make some points and to create some debate in Ottawa, which I've always thought is a little bit insular. Where and I'm sure you run ran into this being in the military in your career where. They would say, oh, you know, I'm one of these officers. I'm very lucky. I was never posted to National Defense Headquarters. I spent all my time outside of Ottawa. Well, you know what I felt when I got posted to Ottawa as a lieutenant colonel? I thought, okay, these guys have got it all wrong. Ottawa is where the decisions are made. Ottawa is where the money is spent, is where the money it is, and where the political decisions are made. So it's an insular place. And when you're out in, whether you're in Shikutsumi or whether you're in Bagotville or where you're you're in Cold Lake or anywhere else, you don't understand what it's like to be in Ottawa and you know where the decisions are made. So, so if I was going to make a point, if I was going to to start a debate, Ottawa was the place to do it. And so, uh, in this insular space, and of course, yeah, it started a debate. All right, I mean that, uh, you know, it, and the interesting thing is. No one has ever written me directly to tell me, you know, I disagree with your remarks. Here's why. Here's some points that I want, you know, you to understand. You know, it's it's never been, the debate never happened. But it created a lot of furor. But, uh, but uh, you know, I, I still think I had a little bit of positive things to say. And I said, Canada, we can we can be a lot better than we are. I don't want to say Canada can be great again because it's not a very well used phrase in Canada. It's not very much understood, but Canada Canada was fantastic place and our country still has an incredible potential. So so I finished by singing uh you know it's a wonderful world nevertheless, you know and uh, and uh nobody talks about that. I guess my voice was not that good. <laughs> but no, but seriously, so I, so the point, I wanted to make the point. I think I made the points that I think are important. And, uh, you know, now we need to continue to have this debate. We need to get the debate, put the, put the issues on the table. Okay, Michelle, uh, the last question I ask all the guests is uh, if you have any recommendations for the listeners that will uh, educate, entertain, or elevate. So uh, what have you got for us? Well, I've got two things. First, one is a book, and another is, is uh, I guess, a little bit of advice, uh, self, self-advice. self uh, The book is called The 1867 Project. It's a, uh, it's a book on Canada. Uh, it's a, a book of 20 different authors that talk about our country. 
It's edited by Mark Milkey. Uh, easy to find, uh, and uh, and it really, uh, you know, it sets straight a lot of the things that we've heard in the uh, in the news recently and in our past, and the things that we've apologized for, which. Apologizing is okay, but you need to go beyond that and uh, and put it in the right context. So, so that that that's the book I would recommend. The other the other thing is, um, I believe very strongly in three components of health: physical health, mental health, and spiritual health. We didn't talk about spiritual health, and people normally don't talk about it. You know, whether you want to call it religious or um, or contemplative, um, I really think that uh, that leaders everywhere, civilian, military, um, need to think about those three things. And uh, you know, and, and it, they will man- manifest themselves in different ways. You know, the physical is obviously very easy, and different people do different things, play hockey or like you know, work out or whatever. Mental health, uh, you know, keeping a a great balance in terms of, you know, doing some things that are different than the physical ones, thinking about other than work. And then spiritual health, I think, is is to to go beyond that and elevate, talking about elevation, um, thinking of the higher purpose, thinking of, you know, do you believe? And if you do, do you practice? Um, and, uh, And so... Something that I've I've tried in my whole life to 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 kind of keep those three things in mind and uh, and and I think uh, I think that is something that that has kept me uh, grounded as much as I can be grounded. But uh, but I think it's very important for people to think about. Thanks again to you and uh, and Barbara for for having me into your your beautiful home here in Y Country and uh, and really appreciate you being a guest on the Northern Sentinels podcast. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you very much. You can find information in the show notes on Canada 125, Unperfor and the Medak Pocket, U.S. Central Command and General Tommy Franks, Michelle's recent public remarks and op-eds, and the 1867 Project. Thanks for listening to the NSP. Goodbye until next time.